Hi everyone. It's a real privilege to be able to share God's Word with you this Good Friday. Today I'd like to focus our attention on just one short verse from Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. These are the words of our Lord Jesus. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me maybe just give you the context for these words. These words were not spoken on Good Friday or even on Maundy Thursday. They were spoken about a week before Jesus' death on the cross. Mark tells us this in Mark chapter 10 and from verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink, and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word. There are just two terms that I'd like us to look at from our key verse, the one relating to who Jesus is and the second relating to why he came. The first term then has to do with who Jesus is, the Son of Man. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. If you read through the Gospels, you'll see that this is one of Jesus' favourite titles to describe himself. He uses it over 70 times in the Gospels, the Son of Man. This was a term that was often used in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Ezekiel, to describe a human being. God addresses the prophet Ezekiel over and over as Son of Man. I'm busy rereading C.S. Lewis's Narnia stories at the moment because I'm now old enough to read them. 
If you've never done so or you haven't done so for a while, I'd really encourage you to read The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and the subsequent books too. It would be a great way to spend your Good Friday afternoon or Easter Saturday. But in the books, the characters from Narnia, which is a magical world, refer to the children of our world as being sons of Adam or daughters of Eve. And that's very similar to this term, son of man. In using this term, Jesus is declaring that he is a son of Adam. He is our fellow man. And that has such important implications for us this morning, Good Friday, 2021. It means that Jesus, as a human being, understands everything that we are going through in our lives at the moment. Let's look back over the last 24 hours of Jesus' life and see just some of what he experienced in just that short period. Firstly, the Bible tells us he was betrayed by one of his closest friends. When we hear the name Judas, we think of the bad guy. But up until that moment of betrayal, Judas had been one of the good guys. He was one of Jesus's 12 closest friends. He'd seen Jesus's miracles. He himself would have performed miracles during the mission trip on which Jesus had sent his disciples. He'd spent three years with Jesus. And during that time, those 13 men must have drawn extremely close to one another, spending every waking moment in one another's company. Jesus was betrayed by a friend. The pain of this betrayal was captured several hundred years earlier in the book of Psalms, where the psalmist prophesied and said this, Psalm 55, If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were raising himself against me, I could hide from him. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship as we walked with the throng at the house of God. Some of you know the gut-wrenching pain of betrayal in this time. The person you thought would back you up joins the crowd in turning against you, or the person that you shared with most intimately as husband or wife leaves you for someone else. Betrayal. Then there was Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says to Peter, James and John, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He prays, Father, if it is possible, let this cup be taken from me. And Luke tells us, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Some people have pointed out that there have been other people in history who've approached death with a lot more calm than Jesus did. The comparison has often been made with Socrates, the Greek philosopher who lived 400 years before Jesus. He was charged with corruption of the young and neglect of the gods, and so he was condemned to drink a cup of poison. And the philosopher Plato tells us how Socrates died. Let me read it to you. The jailer came and handed the cup to Socrates 
who in the easiest and gentlest manner, without the least fear or change of colour or feature, took the cup. Then raising the cup to his lips, quite readily and cheerfully he drank off the poison. At that point all of his friends and followers began to cry. Socrates alone retained his calmness. What is this strange outcry, he said. I sent away the women mainly in order that they might not misbehave in this way, for I have been told that a man should die in peace. Be quiet then, and have patience. So was Socrates braver than Jesus, or were their cups filled with different poisons? The cup that Jesus shrank back from was not simply the cup of his sufferings and death, as horrible as those were. No, the cup that Jesus shrank back from was the cup of God's wrath, as described in Psalm 75. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Jesus was overwhelmed at the thought of drinking the cup of God's wrath, of having to take the sin of the world on his shoulders, and he felt anguish. Many of us at the moment know the metallic taste of fear in our mouths. I know that during the second wave of COVID-19 in South Africa, it felt to me almost as if the end of the world was coming. So many people were getting sick. Several people that I knew had died. Who was going to be next? Would my own family be affected? And there are other fears at this time too. Will I still have a job? Will I still have an income? We lie awake at night wondering what the new day will bring. Then there was Jesus' arrest and his subsequent desertion by all his friends. Many of us at present are for the first time experiencing loneliness and isolation, maybe even desertion. Perhaps you're sat listening to the sermon in your room in a retirement home and you haven't seen some of your family members in over a year. Maybe you feel abandoned. Maybe that sense of abandonment goes back years. Maybe as a child you had a mom or a dad who walked out on you. Perhaps you've had a good friend immigrate. Or perhaps over lockdown you've had a husband or a wife desert you. Loneliness and abandonment, isolation. Then there was Jesus' trial where he was falsely accused and unjustly sentenced, where good was defeated by evil, seemingly, where the truth was defeated by lies. And some of you know the stinging pain of being falsely accused, perhaps at work, of doing your very best, of having the best intentions, and yet being misunderstood and judged and condemned. Then there was his torture at the hands of his enemies, the blows and punches, the crown of thorns, violence. I remember a few years ago, sitting in a doctor's waiting room, reading the Ask Debbie agony column in the You magazine. I remember when agony columns were just about things like breaking up with your boyfriend or about getting the right date. But here's what I read. 
I was attacked walking in a field I have to cross every day to catch a taxi. I'm terrified of that walk, but have no other choice. What can I do? My daughter was raped on a blind date and won't leave the house. What can I do? During a hijacking, I was wounded in the leg. I can't stop crying and feeling helpless. Maybe you too have experienced the physical pain, the emotional helplessness of violence in your own life. Perhaps right now you're suffering the debilitating pain of illness. It wasn't just the physical abuse, but also the verbal abuse that Jesus suffered too. You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. I'm amazed at the self-control of Jesus under those circumstances. Most of us are old enough to have grown out of that little rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We know the pain that words can inflict. Perhaps words from years ago, you'll never amount to anything. I hate you. I wish you'd never been born. And perhaps today you're stuck in a situation where someone belittles you or manipulates you or abuses you constantly through what they say. And then there was the experience of the cross itself. On the cross, Jesus was paralysed, as if it wasn't enough to die a horrible, tortured death. He also died trapped and helpless. Some of you may be familiar with the name of Johnny Erickson. She was a young lady who, at the age of 17, broke her neck in a diving accident and became a quadriplegic. And up until this point, her faith had not been particularly strong, and this accident drove her further away from what she saw as a capricious and unfeeling God. One night, in desperate depression, she begged a friend to give her some pills so she could die. And when her friend refused, she thought, I can't even die on my own. But then one day, Johnny's best friend, Cindy, came to visit and sat at her bedside, struggling to find some way to be of encouragement. And suddenly she blurted out, Johnny, Jesus knows how you feel. You're not the only one who's been paralysed. He was paralysed too. Johnny later wrote, I discovered that the Lord Jesus Christ could indeed empathise with my situation. On the cross, for those agonising, horrible hours waiting for death, he was immobilised, helpless, paralysed. Jesus did know what it was like not to be able to move, not to be able to scratch your nose, shift your weight, wipe your eyes. He was paralysed on the cross. He couldn't move his arms or legs. Christ knew exactly how I felt. On the cross, Jesus experienced the humiliation of nakedness. Corrie Ten Boom was a Dutch lady who harboured Jews in a secret room in her home during World War II. The room was discovered and she and her sister Betsy were sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp, where Betsy later died. 
Corrie wrote a book about her experience called The Hiding Place. And at one point in the book, she writes this. I had read a thousand times the story of Jesus' arrest, how soldiers had slapped him, laughed at him, flogged him. Now such happenings at Ravensbrook had faces and voices. Fridays, the recurrent humiliation of medical inspection. The hospital corridor in which we waited was unheated and a fall chill had settled into the walls. Still, we were forbidden even to wrap ourselves in our own arms, but had to maintain our erect hands at side's position as we filed slowly past a phalanx of grinning guards. How these men could find any pleasure in the sight of these stick-thin legs and hunger-bloated stomachs I could not imagine. Surely there is no more wretched sight than the human body unloved and uncared for. Nor could I see the necessity for the complete undressing. When we finally reached the examining room, a doctor looked down each throat, another, a dentist presumably, at our teeth, a third in between each finger, and that was all. We trooped again down the long, cold corridor and picked up our X-marked dresses at the door. But it was one of these mornings, while we were waiting, shivering in the corridor, that yet another page in the Bible leapt into life for me. He hung naked on the cross. The paintings, the carved crucifixes, showed at least a scrap of cloth. But this I suddenly knew was the respect and reverence of the artist. But oh, at the time itself, on that other Friday morning, there had been no reverence, no more than I saw in the faces around us now. Betsy, they took his clothes too. Ahead of me I heard a little gasp. Oh, Corrie, and I never thanked him. Perhaps some of you know the indignity of nakedness, whether that's the embarrassment of a hospital visit or having to be cared for in an old-age home as your body no longer does the things it should for itself, or perhaps even the horrible humiliation and lasting anguish of sexual abuse. On the cross, Jesus experienced thirst. Remember, he said, I am thirsty. And on the cross, he experienced God-forsakenness. One writer says, The real sting of suffering is not misfortune itself, nor even the pain of it or the injustice of it, but the apparent God-forsakenness of it. Pain is endurable, but the seeming indifference of God is not. And yet Jesus experienced that God-forsakenness as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Jesus experienced death itself. Obviously none of us have experienced death, but we all live under its shadow at the moment. This pandemic has brought to light something that we've always known theoretically, that any one of us could die at any moment, and that one day we will die. And so in just 24 hours, Jesus experienced betrayal, fear, abandonment, injustice, violence, abuse, paralysis, nakedness, thirst, God-forsakenness, death, 
not to mention all of the other human experiences that he had over 33 years. He was and is the Son of Man. And so how in the world could we say that this man is boring or irrelevant to our lives? In the book of Hebrews, we read that in Jesus we don't have a high priest who lives a million miles away and cannot empathize with our sufferings. But we have one who's been tested and tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. The atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche ridiculed the idea of God on a cross. He laughed at the idea of a God of the weak, the poor, the oppressed. But I don't think that Nietzsche lived in the real world. Who wants a God who cannot understand our lives? In our world, we need the God of the cross. Edward Shillitoe was not a particularly good poet of the 1900s, but one of his poems really stands out. It's called Jesus of the Scars. Shattered by the carnage of World War I, Shillitoe wrote these words. Speaking of Jesus, he said, The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak, and not a God has wounds, but thou alone. And so today the first message of the cross is that in Jesus we have a God who understands. Wherever you find yourself today, Jesus understands and empathizes from the inside of your experience. But we can't leave it there. Indeed, we mustn't. If we were to stop our sermon here, then we would be no better than James and John with their request, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Many people use God in this way. We have a God who understands us, and so we can use him to meet our needs. In psychology and in counselling, the counsellor will often make a distinction between the patient's felt need and his or her real need. And so far, we've looked at our felt need, the need for someone to understand us. But our real need is described in the second phrase in our key verse, not just who Jesus is, but why he came. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Just a couple of things here. So interesting that Jesus can say the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom. If I were to say to you this morning, the reason I came to earth was to be the pastor to the classic congregation, you would have a good giggle because I didn't come to earth any more than you came to earth. We didn't have any choice in the matter. We were born. Jesus, though, can say he came because he existed before the world began. I mentioned a moment ago that the term son of man is often used in the Old Testament to refer to a mere human being. But there's a second meaning behind this term too. In the book of Daniel, chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of someone who looks just like an ordinary human being, but who is given all the power, glory and authority of God himself. He writes, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, 
God himself and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This mysterious figure became known as the Son of Man, capital S, capital M, an unknown person of the future who would be given God's glory and authority. And in applying this term to himself, Jesus is saying that he is this messianic figure who has received all the authority, glory and sovereign power of God himself because he is God. Jesus is fully human, but he is also fully God. And as God, as the Son of Man, he's come with a specific purpose, to give his life as a ransom. This word ransom is very important. It's unfortunately a word that we associate with hostages and kidnapping. At one point in his life, when he was still a senator, Julius Caesar was kidnapped by pirates. And originally the pirates wanted 20 talents of gold for him, but Julius Caesar persuaded them that he was worth a lot more than that, and so they should ask for 50 talents for him, which they did. Caesar maintained his cool all the way through his captivity and told the pirates that when he was released, he would come back and crucify all of them, which they took to be a huge joke. They didn't think he'd be able to find their hiding place again. And when the ransom was paid and he was finally released, the whole company of pirates slapped him on the back and waved him goodbye. However, he did come back and retrieve his money and crucify all 500 of them. Julius Caesar was the original Liam Neeson. A ransom is a price that is paid to free someone. Some people want to suggest that Jesus had to pay a ransom to the devil or Jesus had to pay a ransom to his father. But the idea of ransom in the New Testament doesn't focus so much on the recipient of the price as much as it does on the price itself, on the person who is freed and from what it has set that person free. In the ancient world, a ransom was most commonly the price paid to free a slave. And the Bible tells us that we are slaves. Jesus himself said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Malcolm Muggridge was a Fleet Street journalist who died in 1990, and at one point he wrote this, In the dark little dungeon of our own ego, we are prisoners of our self-centeredness, prisoners of our guilt, prisoners of the wrath of God that is upon us because of our inexcusable guilt. Jesus has paid the price to set us free from sin. In Ephesians chapter 1, we read, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. That is the plight from which we've been ransomed. But then we need to ask, what was the price of our ransom? Did Jesus just pay money for us? No. In the book of First Peter, the Bible says, for you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus says that he gave his life as a ransom for many. And that little word for is very important. When you were a child, your mom or dad might say, won't you take this to the kitchen for me? Or won't you fetch that from the lounge for me? And what they were saying was that if you didn't do it for them, they would have to do it themselves. So Jesus dies as a ransom for me. He lives the life I should have lived. And then he dies the death I should have died for my sin. And then he credits his perfect life to me so that I am no longer defined by my worst sin, but rather by the righteousness of God. There is one further implication of Christ being our ransom. You see, in the ancient world, if I went down to a slave market and I bought a slave, that meant that the slave then became my property. And in the same way, God has bought us and we now belong to him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, You are not your own. You were bought at a price. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. I'm not sure if it's a true story, but the story is told how, as a young lawyer, Abraham Lincoln went along to a slave auction to see what went on there. He was deeply distressed to see black Americans being chained like cattle and auctioned off to the highest bidder. At one point, a young woman was brought to the auction block and bidding started, and Lincoln watched as various people made their bids, and then he put in a bid of his own. His bid was countered by another. He bid higher still and was countered again. Finally, Lincoln outbid all the others, and the auctioneer proclaimed, sold. The slave traders then brought the young woman off the block and set her at Lincoln's feet. He reached down, unlocked the chains, and said, You're free. The young woman looked up at Lincoln with a puzzled expression and asked, What does it mean to be free? And Lincoln replied, It means that you can think anything you want to think. You can say anything you want to say. You can go wherever you want to go. The reality of her newfound freedom began to sink in. And with tears streaming down her cheeks, the young woman replied, Then I will go with you. This Good Friday, I need to ask you, have you received all of this for yourself? Do you know not just what it means to have Jesus empathize with you, but do you know what it means for him to be your ransom, paying your debt to free you from sin, free you from a futile way of living, free you to live life, life in all its fullness? And if not, what's stopping you from coming to God and asking him for his forgiveness? and asking him to come and take control of your life. Some of you have yet to do that. And if that's the case, I want to encourage and urge you to do that even today. Some of us, though, gave our lives to Jesus 10, 20, 30 years back. And I think it's important that from time to time, and perhaps especially on this Good Friday, that we offer our lives back to God again. 
The Kohinoor diamond is one of the most spectacular diamonds in the world. It forms part of the crown jewels, and it was given to Queen Victoria by the Maharaj of India, Duleep Singh, when he was just 13 years old. And the story is told of how the Maharaj, when he was a much older man, went to visit the aging Queen Victoria. And when he visited her, he asked that the Kohinoor diamond be brought from the Tower of London, where it was kept, to Buckingham Palace. When it arrived, the Maharaj took the diamond in his hands, and he knelt before Queen Victoria, and he said to her, Your Majesty, I gave you this jewel when I was a child, too young to know what I was doing. I want to give it to you again, in the fullness of my strength, with all of my heart and affection and gratitude, now and forever, fully realizing all that I am doing. May God grant that on this Good Friday we would do the same, give our lives to God again with all of our heart and affection and gratitude, now and forever, fully realizing what we are doing. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen.